So, like I say, it could have been a little confusing last week as we tried to explain the dispensational view of Daniel's 70 weeks while also trying to explain uh, what uh, we as uh, amillennialists believe uh, Daniel's 70 weeks is about. And so, really, as we're in Daniel chapter 9, uh, there is a three-point outline, very simple for the chapter. Daniel, Daniel makes a great discovery in verses 1 and 2. And then Daniel makes a great prayer in verses 3 through 19. And then there's a great answer that comes, comes from Gabriel to him and explains the 70, well, the 70 weeks. And uh, so that's what we have. Now that outline is borrowed from Stuart Alliot. Stuart Alliot is, I believe, still alive. He's a contemporary man and has written commentaries on the book of Daniel. So, you know, a great discovery, a great prayer, a great answer. As you know, I don't usually uh, alliterate like that, but Stuart Alliot does, so about his. So, there you go. Now, tonight, uh, what I want to do is set the stage for the context of this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the 70 weeks. We will finish with that, Lord willing, um, but uh, we're not going to say much more about the 70 weeks except to show from the scripture what I believe the division is. But the context of the book of Daniel is very, very important. So let's look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet that must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So there's our first 70 that we see. 70, of course, uh, whenever we're dealing with apocalyptic literature becomes very important. Seven, 70, any multiplication of seven uh, becomes important here. And so this we find in Jeremiah, and um, go ahead and, and turn there if you would uh, to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. This is, of course, they didn't have chapters, they didn't have verses, they had scrolls. And so as Daniel, and being uh, one that had authority, and one that was a partial ruler of the kingdom, would have uh, access to things like this. And as he was reading and studying the scrolls of Jeremiah, uh, his mind was opened by the Lord to understand some things. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8. This is Jeremiah's words now that Daniel was reading. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I'll send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I'll bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I'll devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, the light of the lamp, the whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So there's no question where this comes from. It comes exactly from there. And to turn to Jeremiah 29 while you're here. 
Jeremiah 29, and we start reading in verse number 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. So the other one was pretty much about desolation and destruction. Now here's promise. After 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations to all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Daniel, really, it, it seems pretty clear to us as we read it, but prophecy is always easier to understand once it's been fulfilled. Daniel now understands this prophecy before it's fulfilled, and he's still in the midst of the 70 year period of time. And so Daniel, you know, he, let me just give you a brief, brief, brief history of his life and how he came to be. Uh, when he was about 14 years old, he was captured uh, in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Israel. Uh, there were three different uh, takings away into Babylon. Uh, he went there with the famous three Hebrew children that ended up being thrown into the fiery furnace, as you may remember. Together, Daniel and his companions uh, refused to really eat the king's dainties and meats. Instead, they asked uh, to, to have a diet that was uh, sufficient for the Jews. And uh, they ended up being more fair, brighter, better students of Babylon than all the others. Because there were people from all nations that were coming together, and they were being taught the Babylonian ways. Daniel, the three Hebrew children, being some of those, along with others. Well, you know, God blessed Daniel. And when we go to Daniel chapter 2, we see one of the first uh, visions that Daniel has explains to Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen. Nebuchadnezzar, a vile, wicked, evil man. He's the head of gold in this vision. And he finds in this vision that some kingdoms are going to come after him. Not our purpose to talk about those yet, but that was what was told in chapter two. Daniel's raised to a place of authority in Babylon, a place of authority that uh, he had under Nebuchadnezzar, even uh, to be able to minister to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, and be able to minister in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. He had a long, long history there that encompassed more than 80 years of, of service, as best as we can tell. So it's just amazing, amazing what God did with Daniel and gave him favor in the eyes of kings and such. Of course, you know, he had his trials too, right? <laughs> you, you remember some of the things that happened to Daniel. Um, but um, Nebuchadnezzar, the incredibly wicked king, he's the one that threw the he three Hebrew children into the fiery furnace uh, because they would not bow. Obviously, Daniel wasn't with the three Hebrew children at that particular time uh, because he wouldn't bow either. But um, the three Hebrew children, of course, um, are not burned by the fire. And it's an amazing thing to Nebuchadnezzar got his attention big time. But by the time we come to Daniel chapter 4, 
we find something else happening. Proud still, arrogant still, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, fulfilling his own purposes and believing that uh, he is the great one. The mighty King Nebuchadnezzar. Who's mightier? Who's done greater things than to build Babylon? And the Lord strikes him, takes away his sanity, takes away his mind. And you can read it in Daniel 4, becomes insane, so insane that he thinks that he's an animal. You know, well, there, there you go. I'm not surprised that we don't find that account in history. It's probably not an account that Nebuchadnezzar would have wanted to have written because he would be restored to the throne. <laughs> okay. So that's not the kind of thing. But hey, you know, it's an amazing thing. Turn to Daniel chapter 4 because this is pretty cool. You know, listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says when God restores his sanity, gives him his mind and his kingdom back. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now look here this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. The question's been asked many times, do, are we going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Did he really uh, come to the Lord and uh, believe in the sovereign God? And no one knows 100% for sure, but uh, those don't sound like the words of a, a lost man to me. They sound like the words of one who's come to understand and to see. Um, however, <laughs> this is where we end with Nebuchadnezzar. The next thing we know, we're coming upon his son, Belshazzar, who's taken the throne in chapter 5. And so how Nebuchadnezzar rules, what he's done, is not told to us in Scripture from that time on. But uh, that's a powerful confession there. And of course, God could save him. And in God's providence, Nebuchadnezzar was not the one to lose the throne. The throne was lost by Belshazzar as Babylon was overtaken in a night and uh, in an evening, let me put it that way, so we don't think of K-N-I-T-G-H-T. Overcome in a night, you know, and um, there you go. And that would be another sign of, of God's grace uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, the famous handwriting on the wall, the fall of Babylon to the Medes and Persians. And in God's amazing providence, as a new nation has taken over, Daniel remains in a position of power and leadership and able to, to speak to mighty kings and give wise wisdom, you know. In fact, look at Daniel 6.3, if you're just walking through with me a little bit here. Daniel 
Then Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. But most of you probably know the rest of the story. The others were jealous. The others decided they had to get rid of Daniel some way. If they could make him sin against God, well, they couldn't do that. They knew they weren't going to be able to entice him to sin against God. So what they did is they told the king to make a law that for 30 days no one could pray to any god except to the king, to King Darius. And in his foolishness, King Darius agreed, signed the decree. The law of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. And so Daniel did what he always did. He went and he prayed. And he didn't pray in secret. He prayed where he was an open window where he could be seen. And uh, the officials came and said, Daniel's not praying to you. He's praying to his God. You're going to have to throw him into the lion's den, like your, the decree says. And Darius did everything he could to keep that from happening. That was not his purpose. That was not his goal. That's not what he wanted. He loved Daniel. He respected Daniel. He tried to find a way around it. But it was the law of the Medes and Persians. And as much as Darius was the king, the law was greater than he was, could not be changed. So Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, a pit, big pit. And they would take those, the lions would be down there. They wouldn't feed them for a great period of time, making them quite hungry and ferocious and angry. And uh, Daniel was thrown into there. And you know that he didn't die. You know that the angel of the Lord came, closed the lion's mouth. Daniel was saved. Darius comes after the end of the day, uh, after the end of the night, and the new day comes, goes to the lion's den, opens it up. Daniel, Daniel, has your God been able to preserve you from the lions? And O king, live forever, you know, was the answer that comes from the bottom of the pit. And of course, they bring him out, and those that trapped Daniel were thrown into that same lion's pit. And the Bible tells us they were, and with their family, by the way, too. So, men, men, if you mess up, you can really cause a lot of harm, right? With their family, too. And the Bible tells us that before their bodies hit the ground, the lions tore them in pieces. Okay, incredible. But here's another case of Daniel. And uh, Daniel, quite well known. You know, I love this passage in Ezekiel. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But... Ezekiel says it twice in, um, in, within a space of just a few verses. Ezekiel 14, 19, God says to Ezekiel, If I send a pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Well, that's Ezekiel who went into captivity after Daniel, uh, being told that by God, Noah, Daniel, and Job. So there's an Old Testament um, uh, hall of faith, if you will, you know, that uh, talks about uh, God's opinion and God's care and love for these particular very important men. Well, uh, we move on here because we've got to move quickly. I'm trying to set the, the big picture of the book of Daniel. And Daniel's an interesting book because it's got uh, history in it, and it's also got prophecy in it. 
uh, prophecy for near and prophecy for far. So now let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And um, we saw in verses 1 through 2 the great discovery. All of a sudden, Daniel, his mind is opened by the inspired word of God and uh, I would say by the Holy Spirit to understand something that really seems pretty simple on the surface there, 70 years. It's going to be a 70-year captivity. At the end of 70 years captivity, uh, Jerusalem, the, the people are going to be allowed to come back. It's going to be rebuilt and such like that. Well, that's what takes us to the Daniel's 70 weeks. Okay, There's the context of it. So Daniel goes to prayer. Let me read this extended prayer of Daniel because I think it's very important to understanding the context of the 70 weeks. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse number 3. Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, quote, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as at this day to the men of Jerusalem, Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. So he's confessing sin, confessing his own sin, confessing the sins of his people, confessing the sins of the leaders, confessing the sins of the kings. Verse 11, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the laws of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. And he, I won't take you there, but you might recall, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told of the curses that will befall Israel if they will not obey the voice of the Lord, even to the point uh, that they'll be taken from their land and driven to other lands. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity, for under the whole heaven, there's not been anything done like what's been done against Jerusalem. Uh, stop there for a minute. Now, that, that's important. We have a tendency not to think that way. Oh, you probably do, because we talk about it a lot in the Bible here, or about in our, in our church in the Bible, of how important the Babylonian captivity was. Uh, to them without knowing if it was going to end, and without understanding it, it was like the world had come to an end. That God had failed, that his covenant promises were now gone. Many of them thought that way. 
And uh, Jeremiah, of course, was the voice crying in the wilderness, uh, trying to give them hope and peace. You know, listen to the Babylonians, submit to the Babylonians. And he was being persecuted for saying that. They said, well, you're trying to turn the people. You know, you're trying to be, be a traitor to the people. Of course, Jeremiah knew that calamity was coming. The book of Lamentations uh, is a, a good example of the heart of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. But embedded in Jeremiah was the promise that there would be a return. And so there was a promise from God that a return was coming. But it's important for us to realize how important the temple was to the Jewish people and how important the land was to the Jewish people. And they were people of the covenant. And now they were driven from the land. Their temple was destroyed. It was like the world had ended. Like the world had ended. Verse 13. That's why he says, For under the whole heaven there's not been done anything like what's been done against Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't the only nation that was taken captive. Jerusalem wasn't the only nation that uh, had its people wrenched away and their land taken from them. But they were the only people of God that it happened to. That's why it's so terrible. Verse 13. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Note verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. You know, the, the destruction of the city, the destruction of the temple, the dispersion of the people, you know. Now, therefore, verse 17, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to do his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. This is an outstanding model prayer. It's an amazing prayer when you come right down to what Daniel is saying. In the midst of affliction, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of his own captivity, and the captivity of his people and the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city, he prays in faith admitting that they got what they deserved, but asking for mercy. You know, no wonder God says, Noah, Job, and Daniel. You know, what an incredibly godly man. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. But he had reason to pray that way. He just got through reading the scriptures. That that wasn't the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the world at all. God had a different purpose. He was going to discipline the people. He was going to scatter them. But after 70 years, 
he's going to bring them back. And again, 70 years in an approximate time. You know, you just can't uh, look at your calendar and go, okay, this, okay. No, it's prophetic time, but it is a good round estimate of the actual length of time. And uh, we'll see how that time period begins because there's a beginning to, to when the 70 years is over. And, uh, and uh, Daniel finds that out too by revelation in just a few minutes here. We'll find it out also. So the seven and the 70 often in apocalyptic literature uh, and Daniel's apocalyptic literature in so many places. And so of course this is the book of Revelation. And uh, here comes the answer and it sets it in the context of 70 weeks. Verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking, and of course he's talking about Jerusalem and he's talking specifically about the temple which is called the sanctuary up above, you know, the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man, Gabriel, of course we know that Gabriel was an angel, you know, but, uh, you know, here it says the man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first. It's not the first time that Gabriel comes up in the book of Daniel. But I'd seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Verse 22, he made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell you for you have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So there's the context of what we have here. And that's what it's all about. Daniel's prayer, and now the revealed purposes of God are now revealed to Daniel. This has already been foreordained. It had already been set up by God how long the captivity would be, how he would regather the people once again, the purposes of God. But Daniel is spurred on by understanding and godliness to pray, to pray. And that's really a, a good lesson for all of us, isn't it? That we need to be people of prayer. We need to pray. We should pray. Uh, will, will God refuse to act if we refuse to pray? Well, I don't think that's really the point or even the right question to ask. The right question to ask is uh, that we should be godly people praying. And I think we can always figure there's going to be godly people praying. Let us be those amongst the godly that pray. That'd be the point. Here, Daniel's the one that's praying. And here's the answer. Here's what Gabriel tells him. And I think that we can understand this and um, be able to come to a good ending of all of, of this and, and the Daniel's 70 weeks, which in the context are given to us in the context of the work that God is doing in restoring Israel and even more than what they expected, even more than what, God, what is even being asked for. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed upon your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Uh, stop there for a minute. 
Now think about it. Is that actually what happened in the space of, um, you know, the time that we're told about if we're not talking about the ministry of Christ and if we're not talking about the work that he did? I mean, this is pretty heavy language here to put an end to sin. <laughs> Believe me, there were, there were great sinners taking place. I mean, the, the people that opposed the Lord Jesus Christ were tremendous sinners, you know. But no, this 70 weeks is going to put an end to sin. It's going to atone for iniquity. Atonement is being made here. Did animal sacrifices provide real and true atonement? Well, they put off. They put off. They put off. It was a reminder of sins. It's what they were every year as they were done on the Day of Atonement. It was a reminder of those things. This is to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Okay. Has that been done, or is that yet to be done? We have to ask that question, right? Has everlasting righteousness been brought in? Has the Lord Jesus Christ come and finished his work? Has he done what he declared that he would do? Has he brought the kingdom of God to us? Well, these are the things that we ask and I think are easily answered. Seventy weeks are, uh, have been declared for this and to anoint a most holy place. Okay. There would be a rebuilt temple. But there's a greater temple in the heavens. And we've seen it in the book of Revelation talked about, you know. Okay, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So stop there for a minute, okay. That's pretty straightforward. I don't think anybody disagrees with that one. Uh, whatever view they might hold of Daniel's 70 weeks, there's a starting time clock to this whole thing. And the most reasonable one, I believe, that exists, although there have been other decrees, you read uh, Nehemiah, you read Ezra, you'll see that other decrees were made along the line as um, to, you know, to build Jerusalem, to build the walls, to give the people what they needed, the gold, the silver, uh, the wood, all these things were provided so that they could do that by the various heathen kings in God's providence, obviously moving in their hearts to do what God had ordained would happen because the Holy Son of God had to come to his father's house. He had to come to the temple because it said that it would, you know. And so there had to be a temple for him to come to. It had to be built. There had to be one. There had to be a Jerusalem to come to because it was promised that he would come to Jerusalem. And so these things had to take place. So the first degree we see probably is the one that we ought to count. Cyrus. Cyrus gives the decree. And if memory serves me right, I think you can read it at the, the end of the book of Ezra. And again at the beginning of the book of First Chronicles. But don't quote me on that because I'm doing that from memory. And memories can be faulty. But I believe that's true. The decree of Cyrus goes forward there. And um, that allows the captives, the captives that want to, to go back to Jerusalem with uh, supplies, and with the king helping uh, to rebuild the temple. Now that would take a long time. Rebuilding the temple would take a long time and rebuilding the city would take a long time. Okay, but uh, we can't just say, okay, now we're gonna see the seven weeks, okay, here. 
uh, the coming the, to build Jerusalem. Um, let me just start right here again. Um, yeah. Um, uh, you know, the seven weeks to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there should be seven weeks. Okay, so this is the decree that's coming so that we'll have a temple, we'll have a city. Then for 62 weeks, it'll be built again with squares and a moat, but in troublesome times. So the building won't stop, it'll just continue on and it'll continue to grow and, and the promise is that it'll be there for this 62 week period of time that it took the seven weeks for it to do that. So we have a, a relatively short time, seven weeks, stretched out into a long time, uh, 62 weeks, you know. And so that's pretty much standard understanding of everyone. But here's where it gets a little tricky. And this is where it gets, I, I think, convoluted. And instead of talking about being convoluted, what comes after 62 weeks plus seven? What comes after 69 weeks? Oh, don't be shy. What comes after 69 weeks in Daniel's 70th week? Week number 70. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't as hard as you thought, was it? You're trying to trick me. No, I wasn't trying to trick you. I was trying to make you think. What comes after 69 weeks? Week number 70. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, which, you know, means there's coming a final week, the 70th week, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Okay. The time clock. It's gone seven weeks. And of course, these are periods of years. It's gone 62 weeks. It's a period of years. But now we have one week left. The Lord Jesus Christ, born, and his ministry, his death, may be cut off, and his resurrection. Okay? And we've worked ourselves through half of the week. Worked ourselves through half of the week. That's what the rest of the passage will say. The people of the Princess come, shall just, okay, now this gets a little confusing here. But realize that prophecy is not always given exactly in a numerical order. Skips ahead a little bit. Anointed one should be cut off and have nothing. Okay, that's the Lord. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. There's the destruction aspect of it. Its end shall come with a flood. Of course, not a literal flood. You know, we've seen this in Revelation, the kind of language that's used prophetically. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And the wing of abomination shall come, one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So what we have, I think in the simplest language that we can get, we have to be very, very careful as we read the passage. But we see half, a, or, you know, half of the seven, or half of the week, is the ministry, the birth, and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's cut off, but of course, um, he rises again. And a new kingdom is being built, you know, a remnant from all of the earth, instead of now just Jew a Jewish nation and a remnant from the Jewish nation that actually believe in Messiah and actually are looking to him and actually trust him and actually make up the first church. 
and uh, are part of that uh, very first people of God. Let's remember, uh, at the very beginning, it was almost an exclusively Jewish church that now believed in Jesus Christ as Messiah. You know? So now we're going another three, uh, three and a half, another half of the last week. And um, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice. Here it is. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, we ought to be able to look back with biblical eyes and see something. You know, and um, this becomes a problem for many. Because some, and I said I wasn't going to pick on any other view, but, but there is a view out there that there's two ways of salvation. You can be saved by coming to Jesus Christ the Lord, or you can be saved by observing Jewish rituals. Okay, uh, that's heresy. Right? That's horrible. It's terrible, you know. But there are some that, that believe that and believe that God has two plans of salvation, you know. Okay, well, we know that's not right. But um, who put an end to sacrifice and offerings? Who put an end to it? The Lord Jesus Christ and the book of Hebrews, put an end to these things. These things are gone. They were meant to be gone. From the very time that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, from the very time that uh, he demonstrably caused um, the veil of the temple to be rent in two, and the holy place just opened to the eyes of all that would come in there, you know, from that very time, it was over. But our God is a gracious God. And what our God did, and you can read it in the book of Acts. You see it in the book of Hebrews, it's told to us in the book of Hebrews. But you see it in the book of Acts, that actually God granted an entire generation time to repent. An entire generation from the resurrection of Christ until 70 AD. And the people kept on sacrificing the people kept on asking as though Messiah had never come. The people kept on making offerings, offerings that could never take away sin and did not take away sin. God gave them a generation and thousands came to Christ during that generation. Thousands came to Christ. And then that was it. The end of the week, the desolation comes the destruction. And remember how we saw in the first destruction of the temple how it was the end of the world to the Jewish people? It was like the end of the world. The end of the world has come. And God said, no it hasn't. The end of the world has not come. You know, I've got a, a plan and a purpose. And he reveals it. He reveals it through Jeremiah. Reveals it to Daniel. There's hope. There's restoration that's coming. Messiah is coming, and he comes. Grace is given. Time is given. We see from the book of Acts that many priests come to believe. Because the priests understood the word, you know, and they understood what was happening. And uh, many of them turned away from the sacrifices and turned to Christ to join themselves to the church and the people of God. And uh, whereas Israel as a nation had been a remnant from the world, 
There was a remnant within Israel, because not all Israel is of Israel. There was a remnant within Israel that truly believed. Jew and Gentile together become a remnant from the world. And we join that remnant. And we have Jewish brothers and Jewish sisters that are part of that remnant too. And, uh, you know, and we hardly even know who is a Jew in a true sense anymore because the genealogical records were destroyed. And it doesn't even matter because he's made us one together. Uh, we've been accused in believing of a doctrine that we don't believe in. Okay. We've been told that um, we, we actually believe that God's purposes with Israel are over, and that he has no more dealings with the Jews, and the church has usurped the place of Israel. We don't believe that. What we believe instead is that God had something better planned, a purpose and a goal. And the goal of mind was to bring salvation to all the world, to all the world, to all the corners of the world, the Jews included. And when we get to, to Romans chapter 11, I'll probably spend three weeks on that. I hope to show you that God's plan is not to destroy the Jews. God's plan is to save the Jews. That, that remnant, that Jewish remnant still remains. And, um, you know, who's Abraham's children? Abraham's children are, are the faithful, like the sand of the sea, you know, or sands of the beach, like the stars of the sky. This is God's plan. This is what God has done. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. It's not just something that uh, God set aside for a time and then decided he'd go back to later, you know. He progresses, progresses, progresses. And this is God's purpose. So, you know, Titus, the Roman army, destroys Jerusalem and the temple. To the Jewish people, is the end of the world, but not to those that believed. To those that believed in Messiah, they had a better temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may the Lord bless the word. And I hope that uh, makes Daniel chapter 9 a little more understandable when we read it in its entire context. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of it. We know that uh, it's difficult many times to understand prophecy, but Lord, when prophecy has been fulfilled, we should be able to understand it. So Lord, help us to do exactly that and help us to praise your name. For Jesus Christ has come to do exactly what he was purposed before the foundations of the world to do, to bring a people to yourself. And Lord, Jesus Christ himself, while he was on the earth, told the, the crowd, that opposed him, that Jewish crowd that he'd been sent to, he said, if you were of Father Abraham, you would believe in me. Lord, that's a very powerful statement and very important to understand. So Lord, may you do great things. May we not be proud ourselves. May we instead be humbled as Daniel was. For we live in the midst of a world of iniquity, a great world of sin, a great world that you would be right to judge and destroy. And you will in the proper time. It's not for us to say when that proper time is, Lord. That's in your hand, in your decree. And so, Father, we know it hasn't happened yet, 
So help us to live for you until you come again. And may Jesus Christ receive all the glory. In his name we pray, amen.